This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Remember the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet in chapter 3, verse 2? O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. Well, the Old Testament shows us a cycle of faithfulness to the Lord, followed by decline and apostasy, then repentance and a return to faithfulness to the Lord. And as Christians, we see that same cycle occurring in our own churches and in our own lives. How do we return to our first love, Jesus, and pursue him for the purpose of seeing him revive our hearts? Well, joining us today is Dr. Tom Phillips, Vice President of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and author of the book we'll be discussing. Really important subject. It is called Ignite Your Passion for Jesus, Your Guide to Experience Personal Revival. It's great to have you with us, Tom. How are you doing? Very good, Janet. Thank you. And I appreciate the opportunity of sharing about our heart revival. I love this. Well, you note that when we think of revival, and I think you're right, we think of the big outdoor stadium events, the tent meetings. How do you think we really need to think about revival, where it starts, and how God brings it about? That's a very good question. Our concept, our concept today is a really, this sounds negative, but it's not. It's a degenerative concept that came from the great movements of God in our country in the past, and uh, after the movements of God, especially in the 1800s, uh, whenever this nation was fledgling and uh, the movement of God broke out that brought about a third of our nation to the Lord, um, we began to try to organize what God had done at that time. And actually, because we prayed so much, God began to move in the communities. But over time, it became programmatic. So even what we do at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was called revivals at times, but... Billy Graham knew better. He said, I'm praying, I'm praying, this was 1949, he prayed it all the way until his death. I am praying for an old-fashioned, Holy Ghost, heaven-sent revival that will sweep America from coast to coast. Amen. And a revival is nothing but ordinary Christianity. So what Mr. Graham was really praying for was a renewed, awakened, restored, reset church of the Lord Jesus Christ, And then when the Church of God is awakened, the results that come from that breed such a joyous church that the uncommitted people look and say, I want what God has done in that person's life, and that's how the revival spreads in great witnessing. Well, you're right about that, and that's such a challenge to us. And I think of what the Lord Jesus said to those seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, and I think in particular of Laodicea. That's often mentioned by a lot of Christians today. Boy, we are just like the church of Laodicea. We're not cold. We're not hot. And the Lord says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him. Do you believe that we're in a position similar to that of Laodicea or some of the other churches that the Lord rebukes and chastens? and encourages also in Revelation 2 and 3? I absolutely do. We actually see a deadness in our churches today. It's a lot like the prodigal son that went away from his father. He never 
changed from being the son of the father, but he turned his back on the father and wasted a lot of resources, ignored the father's teaching. But one day, one day, he said, I must go home. And as he turned from the pigsty in his filthiness and his emaciated body, he did not know that his father, as the Heavenly Father always does, had been going to the little hillside by his house every day, looking down the road, watching for the son to come home. Mm -hmm. And one day he sees this bent figure, thin, similar to what he had seen leave, but not with the great fondness for adventure. Now he's coming home to the God who loves him. And when the daddy wrapped his arms around the son, he said this, For this my son was dead. Now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. And that word in the New Testament, alive again, is anazeo, the Bible, to bring back to life that which is comatose, dead, or asleep. The son was still the son, but now he's come back to that ordinary relationship of father-son that's intimate. And that's what the church is, is actually underway doing right now, and especially among young people that I meet. Great. You're right that that's a really good you know, passage to bring up because that's such an analogous passage for where we are. How do you think we should think about a revived disciple of Jesus Christ? Because even if you've been a Christian for years, it is easy to fall into sin. It's easy to fall, you know, fall into apathy, spiritual apathy. But to be alive in Jesus Christ, a revived disciple who is empowered by the Holy Spirit, what does that kind of disciple look like? Well, actually, Janet, that's why we wrote the book. This book is nothing but a guide or a handbook to a daily intimacy with Jesus Christ, which is a pilgrimage in personal revival. So that person realizes that the time is now. It's a lifestyle. And normally it begins in a brokenness. It may be broken because you realize the goodness of God and it's led you to repentance. It may come from a crisis in your life. But as you become intimate with Jesus, as already a born-again Christian, you become intimate again, much like when you were first converted. Joy becomes real in the midst of true repentance. Yes. So for me, I pray for conviction. God, conviction just simply means, Janet, to see as God sees. God, I want to see myself as you see me. And then confession. Anything in my life that does not agree with you, God, I agree with you that it's bad, and I want it out. Right. And then repentance is not just turning from sin, it's turning to God. So that foundation of obedience builds a relationship through communication, which is called prayer. And that's nothing but, as Paul said, that I might know him. That's just knowing Jesus, not about Jesus, knowing him as a person. And then out of that comes your gifts, because God says, okay, you can serve me now. And one of that is you're driven to the Word of God to learn more about Jesus, and then you want others to know this Savior, and then out of that comes what we call witnessing. And in a time of real revival, that becomes explosive, and that in turn changes one heart at a time a nation. Hmm. 
I love that. I wish we could go down all of those things, each and every person in the United States and throughout the world. You know, when you're talking about beginning with brokenness, that's so important. And I I really kind of hone in on what you said. When you pray for conviction, I think that's excellent because there are a lot of people who might admit, oh, I sin, I do wrong things. I don't always have the right motivations. Yes, I've had bad thoughts, things like that. But there's a big difference between knowing that you're a sinner and then having the conviction of the Holy Spirit that knowing what your sin is should lead, as you said, to confession and then repentance, which is, as you said, turning to God. Those are really vital points in this whole thing, aren't they? They truly are. In the Old Testament especially, we didn't know the grace and mercy that came from the cross that overcame sin and death. So when sin was rampant, there was always a sacrifice involved. But one day, God said, the sac- God the Father said, the sacrifices that I see my people doing are not enough. Hmm. Uh, there has to be bloodshed, certainly, but it's not enough. We need an eternal sacrifice. And Jesus said, Daddy, I'll go. And when we look in the mirror of our own conviction and see that Holy Lord, Jesus Christ himself, standing before us, that brings a brokenness over our own sin. And that's why the Bible says in Romans 2, 4, the goodness of God leads you to repentance. Yes. When God's kindness and love toward Tom Phillips is seen in light of Tom's sin, I don't have to get an animal and sacrifice it. I can't put Jesus back on the cross and don't have to, because sin and death has already been defeated. And generously, God pours out his spirit on his kids and says, your adequacy is not because of you. It's because of my son. Exactly. That's exactly right. And no matter how long you're a Christian, we always have to go back to that truth. Because I think this is what sometimes leads us into spiritual apathy, where I always understand, you know, that I'm a sinner and I accepted Christ as my Lord and Savior. And here I am. I'm a Christian. Why do I feel like I'm so far from the Lord? Well, something else I want to get into is talking about the importance of returning to God's word as well. Dr. Tom Phillips with us. We're going to come back right after this break. His book is called Ignite Your Passion for Jesus. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. 
The Ministry of Preborn invites you to share your pro-life message through sharing heartbeats. You see, when a young woman considering abortion sees her baby on ultrasound and hears the heartbeat, eight out of ten times, she'll choose life for her preborn baby. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Meffer today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes toward saving babies' lives. Call now, 855-402-2229, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. It's great to have you with us and great to be talking to Dr. Tom Phillips. He is vice president of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association and author of the book we're talking about, which is called Ignite Your Passion for Jesus, Your Guide to Experience Personal Revival. And that really has been, I'll tell you, it's interesting, Tom, your book came at a perfect time because this has been so much on my mind. I think because I'm looking at what's going on in the church right now. I'm looking at what's going on in society right now. And I have to say, at least in my lifetime, I have never seen a time in the United United States so much as right now where I say, Lord, if you don't intervene, we are sunk. Do you, do you feel a little like that at this period in history? I do. Billy Graham said, uh, this was, gosh, uh, probably 12 years ago, America has gone down the wrong road a long way. Yes. And that's true. We've never seen such spiritual darkness cover the land. We've never seen such corruption, lying, deceit, accepted. But you know, Janet, the light always shines best in the deepest darkness. Amen. And always light follows the night. The Bible's very clear in Isaiah 60. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations, but the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. That's why in Ezekiel 36 and 37, before the dry bones piece, where God says, you, you think I'm coming back to speak to you and to change you for you, but I'm not. My children, I love you, but I'm coming back that I would get the glory. Mm-hmm. I am God Almighty. Mm-hmm. I want people to know who I am. And even when Moses is standing before Pharaoh, God then speaks to Moses and says, I will do this, not because I want to even bring freedom to my children only. I want people to know who I am. The Bible's very clear. God is love. And God promises us when it's the darkest and it's beyond our ability to overcome and have victory, he says, uh, arise, Jerusalem. And he has to give us the strength to do that. Arise, kids. Let your light shine for all to see, for the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. So we're nothing but the moon reflecting the sun. Mm -hmm. We're a reflection of the love of God. Great. That's so great. Well, and in the history of revivals, as you well know, and you talk about this in the book, we have seen dark times followed by revival. I know you mentioned, for example, the Holy Club, the beginnings of Methodism, Charles Wesley, and, and those students who, who ignited you know, the, this fuel of fire that turned into the Methodist movement. But, you know, this all has to go back to the foundation of God's Word. And when you were talking about repentance and turning to God, we can't know who God is or what He expects of us apart from the Bible. And it kind of concerns me, I shouldn't even say kind of, but you look at some of these statistics 
attacks on Bible illiteracy, even within our churches. And it seems that's also something that we desperately need to recapture is our own passion for God's Word. That's absolutely true. I spoke to Nick Hull this morning, the president of Mission America, and uh, this is the year of the Bible, sponsored by them. And he told me 150 nations are now involved in this year as the year of the Bible. I spoke to a board member about two months ago who's on the Southern Baptist Convention Board in Florida, and they're calling for this to be the year of the Bible. Why? Because the Word of God is the Word of God. Yes. And the principles in it work. It's the Creator's guide to the best life possible. It's not just do's and don'ts. It's His love book to us. And in the history of the Bible, the results are always this. When God's kids get right with Him, the first thing that happens always is a return. Once Jesus is acknowledged as Lord and Savior, a return to Scripture. Yes, right. And the second thing, because you want to know Jesus better, you get in the Word every day, which ends up being a return to the devotional life. And the third thing that happens, okay, I know Him, now I know His Word, I want to tell others that's a growth in witnessing, and that's what breeds the joy, and it's the joy that's the magnet from the unsaved person, uncommitted person, secular person, looking into the church, calling us bigoted and tolerant. Now they say, oh, I see, and I want to be like that. Yeah. Those things do I want go to together. have that joy. They do go together. Yeah, for sure. What What do you think ought to be occurring, Tom, in our pulpits, in our churches, in our Sunday school classes to help facilitate a return to God's Word, really digging into it, not just taking one verse and looking at a verse quickly before you jump in the carpool line, but but really studying the Word of God and, and delving deeply into the truths of God's Word that can transform us? Well, obviously, there's a discipline involved. And even as a young kid, when my Southern Baptist pastor would say to us, you've got to read through the Bible in a year, and oh, to a 13-year-old, that sounds like, oh, (laughs) so laborious. And so, okay, you get this little American Bible Society guide, and you you miss one day, so now you've got to do two days tomorrow, and you miss another day, then you've got to do three days. But I found that if I would do this, this Word of God is alive, and the Holy Spirit is the teacher, and it, He changes you. But that then leads you to communicate with the Father, because it's not a book about Him, it's His book. <laughs> and Matthew Henry once said, when God intends great mercy for His people, He, God, first of all, sets them a-praying. And A.T. Pearson said, there's never been a movement of God that wasn't preceded by concerted, united, persistent, prevailing prayer or communication with God. And it's the Word of God that engenders the prayer, and those two together that makes a new person called Tom Phillips, who is inadequate in himself, but adequate in the Savior. It's fantastic. Oh, all those things are so vital. What about the, the depth of our relationship when you have your title here, Ignite Your Passion for Jesus? This is something that I sometimes hear Christians wrestling with a little bit. Well, do I have to feel up all the time? Do I have to feel passionate all the time in order to be right with the Lord? What does it really mean to have passion for the Lord Jesus Christ on an ongoing basis? Well, it's really a matter of faith. The word faith is something I don't even quite comprehend because it's a measure of things hoped for, things not seen. Yes. So every day, out of conviction, I get up and say, okay, Daddy, I'm going to take account of yesterday, and anything that I omitted to do, I'm going to correct today. Anything I committed that was wrong, I'm going to ask you to forgive me. And if I hurt someone, I'm going to go back to them. Now, Daddy, my day is yours by faith, 
and I'm going to be in your will all day today because I give my life to you. That doesn't mean I'm going to feel it. It's yeah. my faith. Yeah. And then as I go through the day, I am utterly convinced by faith that it's his day, and the passion comes from the reality of knowing my father has me. He won't drop me, but if I drop myself, just like driving down a four-lane, I can come to the cloverleaf, conviction, confession, repentance, spin-off, come right back on as, a, as utterly committed to him as I was that morning. I might have missed a little bit of time, but I haven't messed up the whole day, even though I messed up. Right, right. And so this is a matter of faith, the evidence of things not seen. And so passion, it comes from obedience and belief in him. It's not necessarily always feelings, but when it is feelings, it's more than happiness, because that's about happenings. It's about joy, and that's a relationship with someone who'll never let you go. That's why the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Wonderful. Well, you know, I think of Ephesians 4, where it talks about the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And you talk about the issue of gifts. Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets and evangelists, etc., to equip his people for works of service. And this is all for the purpose of building up the body of Christ. Do you think that we have neglected talking enough about the individual spiritual gifts that each of us have been given when we came to know Jesus Christ? Because there was a time, I know even 2013, 30 years ago, it was more of a subject that came up, it seems, uh, you know, anecdotally. What's your gift? What's your spiritual gift? How important is it to restore that discussion and to discover your own spiritual gifts so you can employ them in the work of Jesus Christ? I think what we've done, I remember those times when we were all into gifts. How many are there? 18, 21? Which yeah. ones do I have? <laughs> right. And, uh, and, and once we knew what they were, we wanted to walk in Jesus in those gifts which is a stewardship issue, but to me it became mechanical as I saw the church try to programmatically say, okay, here's a test, take the test, these are your gifts, now you own them. No, you don't. Right. He owns you. Amen. Those gifts are a stewardship issue. It's like you've got a bank account, but you don't own it. You let it you're allowed to use the money in it because your father owns it. And when we look at the people today, church-wise or unchurch-wise, we are so divided. But God promises us in Ephesians, where you were, that in the fullness of time, which I believe is now, in the fullness of time, He, God, will gather together all people into Christ. And that's a revival. It starts with the church, and then it awakens the lost. And the Bible tells us very clearly, no one, when he's lit a lamp, covers it. And all of us have these gifts, and Jesus said to them, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the gifts are about letting his light shine through us. We do not own God. Yes. He owns us. That's right. That's right. A good reminder. A good reminder. And I think this whole issue of personal revival is so important, as you say, Tom, because this will have reverberative effects, if I can say it that way, not only on our churches, but on our country. How would personal revival in our individual hearts potentially affect our nation if the Lord were to work another revival in us? Well, this is what the Lord showed me about two years ago, that he moves in light and light dispels darkness. So you can have a pin prick of light, and that's nothing but a person in Jesus' name helping someone at the grocery store who dropped their box. Now, a pin prick can develop into a pinpoint, and a pinpoint is someone whose life literally dispels darkness like a laser beam going through the day. And then there are pockets of light, real pockets of light, like committed churches, 
or cell groups or people working in justice missions or human trafficking. And then there are passions of light where whole groups are so committed that they're sending out people to the mission field or they're going into the inner city or they're raising money for the poor. And then there are patterns of light where many women burdened by God, not just organizing it on their own, like Hungary, I had the privilege of directing a crusade there before the Berlin Wall fell. But the whole nation of church came together and we developed this organism that became a pattern of light that changed the nation. That's wonderful. So pinpricks, pinpoints, pockets, patterns, and passions. All important. Well, the great book is Ignite Your Passion for Jesus by Dr. Tom Phillips. Thank you so much, Tom, for being with us. Thank you, Janet. A privilege. Oh, thank you. God bless. We'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back, everybody. I don't know how this occurred, actually, but I happened to come across a link to a podcast from Lifeway. Lifeway is the Southern Baptist entity of the Lifeway Publishing and Lifeway Bookstores, which recently closed down. But I digress. Anyway, there is a podcast, one of the many hundreds of thousands of podcasts out there from Lifeway. And on this particular podcast, There were a couple of guests from the ERLC, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. It's just so woke over there. So they had on this podcast Daniel Darling, who's the VP for Communications for the ERLC, and Trillia Newbell, who's the Director of Community Outreach for the ERLC. Joining with them were these hosts who had them on, Chris Surratt and Brian Daniel, I think his name is. They they hosted this podcast to introduce the subject of a new small group study that apparently Lifeway has now released. It is called The Church and the Racial Divide, Finding Unity in the Race Transcending Gospel. Now, keep in mind the ERLC has made lots and lots and lots of headlines over the last couple of years for continually talking about this issue of racial reconciliation. And I will put my cards on the table right from the outset. And I think you already know this if you listen to me. I am all for racial reconciliation. I think it's fantastic. And I think it happens naturally when you're a Christian. Call me backwards, but I just have never seen a problem with it. When you have Bible-believing Christians, there's a natural love for other Christians, and it's a colorblind love. I just, I've never seen a group of Christians together of different races who were divided and were nitpicking and hated each other and were despising one another because of their skin color. I just, I've never seen that in action. And because of that, I have always found it off-putting that the ERLC has made such a big thing about how awful people are because they're all a bunch of racists. And what they really need to do is just admit it. Now, the only way that you can really make that statement is if you know the person is a racist and you know the person refuses to admit it. But in the case of the ERLC and their woke friends in the Southern Baptist Convention, it's just a blanket statement that they 
cast off on millions of Christians. It happened, as you know, just a few months ago, the whole flap with the First Baptist Church of Naples, Florida. And when they did not hire this African-American pastor right away, they started putting out there that these people at the church were racists. And as it turns out, they did not reject this pastor because he was black. They rejected the pastor because they didn't believe, A, that his positions were conservative enough for the church, and B, he didn't meet the stated qualifications for that particular position at the church. So they had very reasonable, you know, excuses for not voting for him, but it certainly had nothing to do with skin color. And nevertheless, people got ousted from the church and all kinds of terrible stuff went on down at that church at First Baptist Naples. So this is the context. This is the stuff that's behind it. But I want you to hear some of what they talked about on this podcast, because I think that it really reveals What is going on in the Southern Baptist Convention? And that is this, which I think is the bottom line. If you do have a problem of racism, and it really is a gigantic problem, then you should be in search of a solution, right? What is the solution? The solution is we're all sinners. We're all made in the image of Jesus Christ and God made us in his image and we are all saved the same way because we're all damned the same way. So there's no room for inferiority. There's no room for superiority. There will be people from every tribe and nation and language across the globe who will be rejoicing around the throne in heaven one day. And so let's be the church. And there is healing and there is forgiveness They don't like to talk about that too much. Healing and forgiveness. And then presumably, like with any other sin, when there is reconciliation, when there is forgiveness, when there is love and you're loving your neighbor as yourself, you can now move on, right? But they never move on because they have embraced critical race theory. This whole idea that you, especially if you're white, you're a permanent racist, it's baked into you and you can't ever get rid of it. Well, this is out of the mindset of Kimberly Crenshaw. This is not out of the pages of scripture. So just kind of keep that in in your mind when you're listening to this. First, these editors, Daniel Darling and Trillian Newbell of this new small group study called The Church and the Racial Divide are asked, why are you putting this out now? And this is what Daniel Darling said. Cut one. If I can speak from a perspective of, you know, a, a white evangelical pastor Unfortunately, a lot of times in our churches, we have not really talked about race. Like we, we have not really taught our people how to think well about race. I don't think it's intentional. I just think when you're in the majority, it, you know, it doesn't hit you. So you're not thinking about it, right? Um, but the main reason I would tell pastors that it's important is because the Bible talks about race. I have people say, why are you always talking about race? Well, the Bible is always talking about it from just Revelation. It's it's. You know, um, and so I think what it's important now is like there's so many conversations in the culture. There's there's a lot of tension. There's a lot of kind of acrimony and like just saying, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible talk about about this? Um, You know, when I think about the vision of John and Revelation, Revelation five and seven, that, you know, the new Jerusalem will, will will feature people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. You know, John didn't just say, or you know, the Bible doesn't just say, you know, you know, there's people are going to be united, or you know, there's going to be one people. It, it says it, it makes a point of saying, of specifying people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people keep their ethnic identities. So this idea that 
you know, this racial unity in the kingdom of God is really a outgrowth of the gospel. It, it's not just a kind of a nice, it would be nice if people got along type thing. It, it's really an imperative that flows from the gospel. All right. I, w- I would just like to reiterate, and I'm not trying to be mean by saying this, but this man is the vice president for communications for the ERLC. And you just sat there and listened to a minute and a half of him rambling and saying, you know, a lot. And he really didn't say a lot. But what he did say was, to my mind, a, a little bit interesting when he says, the Bible is always talking about race from Genesis to Revelation. What translation are you reading? He talks about different people. He talks about the Israelites and he talks about some of these other tribes, of course, in the Old Testament and different people groups are mentioned, but not in the sense that the critical race theory pushers talk about it. it it's just not the case. And there's no scripture quoted. If, if it says so much from Genesis to Revelation on the subject of race, you didn't even quote one verse except to go and talk about the people who will all be worshiping the lamb at the end of history, where we will all be speaking in, you know, together in worship to the Lord. I mean, of course, that's where we're headed. But because we are headed there, the goal ought to be reconciliation and it ought to be healing and forgiveness. Now, it shouldn't be a perpetual issue. These guys have been going on for years about racial reconciliation with no answers they don't really have answers. Did you catch the part where he said, we haven't really talked enough about race in our churches or taught our people how to think well about race? And then he just kind of leaves it hanging there. Well, how do you think well about race? As many Christians have pointed out, there really is only one race, and that's the human race. We might have different skin colors and we come from different countries and we speak different languages, but there's only one human race. So what's there to talk about? Well, there's racial tension. Right. But I would make the argument that it is the liberals who are inciting the racial tension, by and large, in the political realm, going back to the Obama years. If you whip up the race wars, then you can keep people balkanized. You can keep people divided. How true has that been in the political realm? Now we've got all this intersectionality nonsense. Everybody is an oppressor or an oppressed. You're either a victim or you're an oppressor. And if you're the oppressor, you can never break free of your oppressor status. So there's no hope. And what happens in the church? You have people inside evangelicalism and in the Southern Baptist Convention adopting the same worldly philosophy that somehow there are oppressors who need to be righted. You know, you need, you need to be taught well. Taught about what? You had a minute and a half to explain what I need to be taught. You didn't say anything. You just talk, you just talked for an hour. Friends said, you know, about 20 times and said how the church isn't helping people think well about race. Well, your job as a pastor is not to help people think well. Your job as a pastor is to help people think biblically and go to the pages of God's word for that. And unfortunately... No Bible there. Not so far. We're going to come back to it, though. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. We'll return right after this. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom 
comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child. Perhaps the dad's gone. Perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort. But what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of Preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. A gift of $22 will provide one ultrasound, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. I was talking a little bit about this recent LifeWay podcast show discussing this small group study they've put out in the Southern Baptist Convention called The Church and the Racial Divide, Finding Unity in the Race, Transcending Gospel. And this was edited by two ERLC members, Daniel Darling, the VP for Communications, and Trillia Newbell, who's Director of Community Outreach. They were guests on this podcast. And I played a little bit of what Daniel Darling had to say. The Bible is always talking about race from Genesis to Revelation. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't see the Bible talking about race nonstop. I don't know what translation you're using, but this is just weird. So anyway, I want to cut to what Trillian Newbell had to say on this subject. Listen to cut to. Well, we often quote for such a time as this. Well, I would say for this topic, every time is this is <laughs> always important. It's since the beginning of time, since the moment sin came into the world and we became began to to hate one another based on the color of our skin and our cultures and ethnicities, we, we've needed to be reminded of what God says about people made in the image of God and how we should value them and how he is a God that is not partial. And so we've needed this reminder. The first century church needed that reminder. Um, we need to be taught constantly that we fail and fall short of the glory of God in loving our neighbor. And how can we, how can we repent and change and grow? How can we repent and change and grow? Well, isn't there good news at the end of it though? That in the gospel of Jesus Christ, men and women and children from all over the world of all different ethnicities and backgrounds can become one, that we become one in the Lord Jesus 
And, and why aren't we talking more about that? Why is it always, we're so divided, we have work to do. You guys need to repent. Again, we're back to the assumption that there are just millions of people out there who need to repent of their racism without even knowing what's in people's hearts. That is what is wearing on so many people. That's why people were so upset in the Southern Baptist Convention to see that Resolution 9 pass. And it, this whole idea that we can use critical race theory as a tool, an analytical tool. And those who stood up and said no, like Tom Askell from Founders Ministry, which he pointed out in his recent documentary film, By What Standard. They're right about this. They're saying, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why do we need anything outside of the Bible? We certainly don't need some progressive theory guiding our thinking. And of course, Resolution 9 was passed anyway. And now there are those who say, let's unpass it. Let's get rid of it. We'll see how that goes down. Then the subject comes up. So how can racial reconciliation be achieved by racially homogenous churches or groups? And this is, again, Daniel Darling. Cut three. The sad thing is most of our churches are are racially homogenous, uh, although there's some really good, you know, exceptions of this, of, of very racially diverse churches. And I think, you know, as as America becomes more diverse, I think our it'll for you know, it'll force our churches to become more diverse. But, but I would say, um, you know, if you're in a church that's, uh, primarily, you know, uh, homogenous, and, and we should still have the sensitivity. I think one of the things we want to do here is just, you, you know, teach people and have all of us learn what does the Bible say about uh, racial reconciliation, and move people from kind of thinking it would be a nice thing to thinking, okay, this is something God desires. This is a beautiful thing. So even having the sensitivity. So, you know, overnight you're not going to change your church from being racially homogenous to be. Um, you know, multi-ethnic, multicultural, but at least having that desire and working toward it and even living uh, multicultural lives. So, you know, in our in our interactions, in our communities, in our workplace and everywhere else, the what, what we read and just just kind of being that kind of person. I think our neighborhoods are becoming more more diverse, uh, which is really great. And we should welcome that. I think this will teach us to kind of welcome that and want uh, to pursue those kind of relationships. Uh, and so I, I think this is one of the really important goals. All right. You have to have more sensitivity. How do you know people don't have sensitivity? This is just all assumed. You people out there, you terrible people, you don't have any sensitivity. You need to be living a multicultural life because diversity is good. And as we get more diverse neighborhoods, it's always good. Okay, well, call up Sweden and ask them how that's turning out. It's not necessarily the case that to go multicultural is a natural step into betterment. It's not always the case. It's it's kind of a naive outlook, actually. And it's not saying anything about any particular race in order to observe that sometimes multiculturalism can cause a host of problems. And again, you can go back to sin, that that is the problem. But it's almost like this pie in the sky. If we were just more diverse and more multicultural, everything would be solved. No, no, that that's not how it works. So what tips do they have for people leading or considering this study? This is Trillian Newbell again. Listen, cut four. It's okay to not know, to say, you know what? I, I don't know. Why don't we research that? Why don't we read something else? Why don't we dig in further? And, and because there are going to be some things that, especially when you're talking about the application, I think from... God's word, we can read God's word and we can learn and grow. And but I, I don't think there's going to be a ton of confusion there. But 
in regards to applying God's word, we we get all sorts of confused, and there's a lot of different opinions about the application. And so, so I do think that when you are thinking through that next step, and you're unsure of that best next step, you can you can be okay with kind of that tension of I'm not really sure, and I'm going to step in faith, but. I don't know. And so I I do think that often people, instead of doing anything at all, they just won't do, they won't do anything. What? (laughs) It's kind of confusing. Let me ask you a question based on listening to that. Do you hear any solutions here at all? Do you hear any hope from either of these people saying what's wonderful about being a Christian is that we are all one in Christ Jesus? I haven't heard anybody say that. I listened to the whole thing. I didn't hear a lot of that. I heard a lot of, well, you know, the Bible talks a lot about race. Well, we need to have sensitivity. We need to live multicultural lives and we need to do things. And even if you don't want to do anything, you should do something, but you can do nothing, but you can do something. It's just empty stuff. Listen now to this. This is the host talking about the historical implications of this Bible study. And uh, this Brian Daniel asks the other host, Chris, what he thinks. Listen to this exchange. This is cut five. This is a a critical moment, this Bible study. I think represents a critical moment in uh, what could be in, in any group's history or whatever life the group is the group, the life, the group is together. Just because we're dealing with, with, with real, real things, real issues, and real people. And like Dan said so well, this isn't just a nice thing to do for people on the lines of some moralism. This is an expectation. It's a, it's an expectation. Chris, yeah. what about you? No, I I agree. I was just thinking that my family has kind of walked this out uh, over the last six years. We moved from a very homogenous suburb of Nashville and moved downtown Nashville. And it's it's racially diverse. It's also um, uh, lifestyle diverse. And we have spent six years listening and just getting to know people. And our eyes have been opened in a way that, that we just didn't even know. And, and we, we thought of ourselves as being open to other cultures and all of that, but we didn't know until we lived it, until we're in the middle of it and immersed in it. And we've done a lot more listening than we have talking. And so I, I think that's the approach. Oh, listen to this, though. Listen to this. What they're really saying here is that the proper thing to do, apparently, if you're like this host, is you move to a racially diverse neighborhood and you listen for six years. You don't talk. You just listen. You learn. Well, wait a minute. I thought this was all about what the Bible had to say on race and what God's word has to say to guide his church on the issue of racial reconciliation. Now you find out at the end of this thing, no, you just need to shut up and listen. Listen to people of other cultures. Well, I agree with listening. I have no problem with listening, but that isn't enough for a Christian. That is not enough for a Bible study, certainly. You need to take the word of God and bring it to bear in actual relationships with your neighbor, regardless of their color, right? Isn't that what the Bible really says? That we are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no Jew or Greek, slave or free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. That's actually good news. Because it means that you don't have to be permanently divided from some other sinner of another culture. You have a lot in common. You have sin in common and you have grace in common and you're going to have heaven in common. And you don't have to embrace critical race theory on earth. You just don't. You can say, we're just going to be Christians. Why do we need to be beaten over the head? And you've got to leave your neighborhood and you've got to listen for six years. Where does the Bible say that? You listen and you shouldn't talk? 
you shouldn't be sharing the gospel with other people. You shouldn't be on on a mission to make things better. Well, I think they would say, yes, you, you should make things better. But the reason I wanted to play that is I wanted you to see what the attitude is of a lot of these leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. Oh, and by the way, I need to throw this in as well. People have pointed this out before, but I wanted to do a current headcount. The ERLC staff, if you go on their website, 27 out of 29 are white. <laughs> the ERLC Leadership Council, 73 of them are white, eight of them are African-American, and then they have a couple of other races. That I'm just saying, I'm just saying, these are the people who are telling you, you need to stop being so homogenous. Well, maybe they could lead by example, right? That's going to do it for us. God bless you. Thank you so much for being with us. Isn't it great to be one in Christ Jesus? It certainly is. We'll see you next time.